So welcome everybody to part number three of a series that we're in called Higher Love. And in this series, we have been talking about higher love. That Jesus died and rose again. And with that, he gave us the keys to the kingdom to become agents of love. And higher love, not just love. And that what we want to do is, in this world that is so broken, we want to show them higher love. But we have to start with each other. And if we can't love each other, then they, the world, they're not going to know that we are his servants and that he loves them. You see, lower love or selfish love is a love that we give so that we can get stuff back. That we love people who are like us, who look like us, or we love with strings attached to it. And so the first week, we just identified what higher love was. That it is the love that Jesus showed us, even though we didn't deserve it. But that God gives this higher love to us. And then he says this in John 15, 12. He says, love one another, not as the world has loved you, but as I have loved you. And so we're studying what is that Jesus love? What does that higher love look like? And so last week we applied it to marriage or pre-marriage relationships. And we discovered that love defers. Paul explains that higher love is always thinking about the other person first over our own needs or our own rights. And that we are trying to become that right someone instead of looking for that right someone. And if you're already have found that someone, that you are trying to be the right someone as opposed to trying to get your partner to be the right someone. And that we have to also prepare that it's work. Relationship is work. We don't just have a promise and a party. We don't just say a vow and have a reception and then everything is wonderful. We automatically become our best self. No, it's work. We have to prepare to do that. Whether you're preparing to find the some, right someone or you have found someone and you are preparing constantly, constantly preparing to be a better version of who God made you to be. Now, if you missed either one of those, you can go back to YouTube or website or our mobile app and catch up on those. Those are going to be foundational for what we're going to hear today. So today, we are going to be talking about applying higher love across cultural and racial lines. Now, I'm going to be moving really fast through this message. And the reason is because I've got something really, really cool that I want to let you know about at the end. And that's going to take a few minutes. So you, you guys hang in there with me. And all the notes are on the app. And we're going to put up the recording so you could go back and listen to it again. But I'm going to be moving pretty quick. Are you with me? Yep. All right. Now, as we talk about this, I just want to start out by acknowledging that I have a very limited perspective. And so it is with a pure heart that I'm going to do my very best to talk about a very important issue. And this is something that has been tearing at the fabric of the church, in, at least in America, for generations and generations. And I am aware that it is an uncomfortable conversation sometimes for some of us. But I'm also aware that it's a very overdue conversation within churches today. That this should be talked about more in a biblical context. And I also want to set your mind at ease that this is not in response to anything that has happened here at Living Word. In fact, um, I, I think it's better that we address these type of issues uh, instead of in response to something that's happened that we get ahead of it. That, that we're, you know, that it's an issue within our society. It's an issue that our Bible deals with. But in addition to that, we have a very diverse congregation. 
And that means that we have the opportunity to show the world higher love across racial lines. Is that right? So if you're here today and you're not a Christ follower, which means you're not sure about this whole God thing and you're still checking it out, well, the good news for you is that the strategies and the concepts that we are going to pull out of the Bible today have worked in creating unity even outside of Christian circles. But for us Christians, here's what I know to be true. That if we are to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, to show Jesus' love to the world, to be the example to the world of how things should be done, how unity happens, then we have got to get this right in our churches. And I cannot, I can't speak for all the churches in America, but my assignment is to shepherd you and to shepherd this church in the best way that I know how. And I refuse to shy away from us having a dialogue. And, and I realize and I'm aware that this can make us uncomfortable, that even, it can even get messy at times. We have people with very different views all within one church. And listen, I may not make everybody happy. I'm going to address certain things. I'm going to teach what I feel like the Holy Spirit has given me to teach. And for some of you, some of you you're going to wish that I had said this or, I, you, or that I said that or that I didn't address this other thing. And maybe we'll get to some of those areas in the future. But for today, I prayed and I believe that this is the message from the Holy Spirit to us all. To you, to myself, and to all of us. I'm committed to build the strongest congregation that I can across every divine. Because first and foremost, we serve Jesus. And Jesus and his higher love says that the world is going to know us by our love for each other. And there's a whole nation of people looking for somebody to lead them and guide them through this. To be an example. And I believe that that's supposed to be the church. Us. And listen, Jesus calls us to be like him. And choosing to love each other with higher love it is a self-sacrificing love it's a love that's willing to suffer for others even when they reject us sometimes today very poignantly I want to make you aware that we cannot get the speck out of our brother's eye out of our society's eye without getting the plank out of our own eye as a church first as a whole and so I'm going to talk to, as I talk today, I've got to figure out where I fall. You've got to figure out where you fall and where our planks are. Because we've got to start somewhere. And it starts from the inside out. It starts with us as individuals and then us as a church. And then, and only then, can we affect our communities. But guys, if we can't get this, home at, if we can't get this right at home... I think that, the, I think that the, the local church is God's answer to the world and this love. And if we can't get this right at home, our efforts within our communities are going to be less effective, if effective at all. It's got to be something where the Holy Spirit, the love that God put in our heart, that higher love happens within our church and then bleeds out into our community and into our nation. But the good news is that the Bible does give us some handles on how to handle this situation. Because there are stories within the Bible where they also struggled with race. And sometimes they didn't handle things very well within the early church. See, they were trying to cross the racial divide and boundaries within their society. And so we take comfort in the fact that the early church struggled with this as well. In fact, Peter himself struggled with this. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through just one story of the early church dealing with racial issues. And one man, Peter, who had to overcome some prejudice in his heart. And we're going to see how, listen, the situation was messed up and he was messed up and yet there was redemption in it. See, what's happening in the New Testament church is the unraveling of cultural norms and racial differences between Jewish people and the Gentiles, everybody else. Because in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, listen, you're going to go and be in my disciples and you're going to take this message to Jerusalem, Jewish people, Judea, more Jewish people. But then you're going to take it to Samaria as well. People who are racially different than you. And then to the end of the earth, all of God's diversity. And so Peter heard all of this and yet he was still challenged. Paul, the Apostle Paul, gives us some background on some of the struggles that Peter went through as a Jew in relationship to other races. And so he says, when, uh, let's look at that first verse. Yeah, when Cephas, that's Peter, he says, when Peter came to Antioch, I, being Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before a certain man came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But then when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Or in other words, his own Jewish race. See the uh, next verse. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. So we see that Peter was struggling with an infection in his heart. See, when nobody else was around, he would hang out with the Gentiles. But when his own people were around, he was embarrassed. He began to back away and separate himself because he was afraid of what his own race would say about him hanging out with somebody from another race. And we know that this goes on for years and years and years because there is a story in Acts where everything changes for Peter and his perspective. And there are some amazing things that we can extract from here to help us be a model for this higher love. And so in Acts chapter 10, 10 chapters after Jesus gave the Great Commission, and, and we have Peter who is still struggling with this with this racial thing. Scholar believes that seven years went by between Acts 1 and Acts 10. So for the last seven years, Peter has only been hanging around with Jewish people. That was his comfort zone. And God is calling him beyond his comfort zone and beyond his current perspectives. So at the beginning of Acts 10, there is this guy named Cornelius. He's a centurion. Which means that he was not only a Gentile, but he was also part of the Roman army. And the Romans were the oppressors. That was a, they were the society that were, that were suppressing the Jews. So there was this constant racial turmoil. The Jews felt like they were spiritually superior to the Romans. And the Romans were actually occupying the Jewish land. And so they felt like they were superior to these Jews. So there was this natural tension between these two races. And so what happens is Cornelius, the, the centurion, this, the Roman, Roman oppressor, the Bible says that he was devout and God-fearing. So somewhere along the way, he had been exposed to the gospel, but he had not become born again yet. He didn't understand that yet. But the Bible says that they generously gave to those that were in need and they prayed to God regularly. So this angel shows up. And, of course, when all angels show up, Cornelius, this guy, was terrified. 
And so the angel says, calm down. Listen, your prayers and your gifts to the poor have gotten to God and they've gotten God's attention. And he tells him to send men to a town called Joppa and ask for a man called Simon, who is also called Peter. It's Peter. So he does that. He sends some people to go get Peter. At that exact same time, Peter is staying with a friend in Joppa and he goes up to the roof to pray. And while he's praying, he gets hungry. And while they're making a meal, he falls into a trance on top of this house and he sees a vision. And in Acts 10, 11, it says that he saw heaven open up and something like a large sheet being let down uh, to earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then he hears a voice that says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, what we don't understand in our culture, but everybody in the New Testament first century church would understand is that these animals that Peter was seeing are what the Bible would refer to as unclean. See, God gave the Jews all these dietary restrictions in the Old Testament. They were allowed to eat certain animals, but other animals were considered unclean. But other people from other races, they would eat these animals. And so the Jews would look down on them because they were eating unclean or impure animals. And so in verse 14, Peter replies and he says, Surely not, God. I would never, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And then God speaks to him a second time. And he says, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happens three times and immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. So if you don't understand the culture here, if you don't understand the mindset of first century Jews, then we miss how relevant and how impactful this vision is to, to our life today. Peter was still dealing with, all, with, his, with his prejudices against other races. Peter... Is, while Peter is pondering the meaning of this, and just as Cornelius's men are knocking at the door downstairs, the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter, and he says, three men are, are, are downstairs for you. And so get up, go downstairs, don't hesitate to go, with, go to them, because I've sent them. So Peter goes downstairs, and then in verse 22, here's what the man said. We have come from Cornelius the centurion. Whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute centurion romans gentile the oppressor of god's people the impure the unclean the guy that is beneath the jews that eats unclean food but the thing is is god's already told him go ahead and go so he's stuck so the next day peter goes with these guys to cornelius's house and cornelius has invited all of his relatives and all of his close friends and the house is packed with Gentiles so in the next verse Peter walks up to the to the door and this Roman centurion falls at Peter's feet in reverence now I want to point out two different things here one both these races think that they are better than the other so you've got the military oppressor and you've got the Jews that are oppressed. And the Jews that are oppressed are God's chosen people and feel like they're superior to the Gentiles who are unclean and impure. And what happens here is absolutely the most beautiful thing. As Peter enters the house, Cornelius meets him and falls at his feet in reverence. You see, this is a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier over a hundred other soldiers and he bows at Peter's feet, honoring him above himself. It's what we talked about last week. 
that you treat somebody else as if they were more valuable than you. Not that they are necessarily. And then verse 26, Peter says, look, get up. I'm just, I'm just a man myself. And so we have these two people that are humbling themselves in front of each other. And so Cornelius takes him aside and Peter sees this big group of Gentiles and he addresses the room. And in verse 28, he says, You are all well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. That I should not call anyone less than me or think of myself as better than anybody else. And what he's referencing here is extremely important. Because he says, you know our law says that we're not associated with Gentiles. But see that word Gentile just literally translated, it simply meant somebody of another race other than Jew. The difference between Jews and Gentiles was as much racial as it was religious. And what he's saying is, look, you know that we're not allowed to hang out with you or visit you. But the thing, see, here's the thing. This is not an actual law. You go back in the Old Testament, God never said this. This was a law that man had created. And it had become the Jewish tradition that they just don't associate with people from other races. And that was crazy because it was, that was never God's idea. And Peter is still struggling. Even though God knew that, that Jesus had called him beyond the Jewish world, he had stayed in his comfort zone no, and just stayed in conversation with people that were like him, thought like him. And God is pushing him beyond his comfort zone. And he's struggling here to figure out, like, so what part of my culture and my identity and my racial identity do I have to let go of in order to speak to the gospel and the mission that God has called me to, to these people? Intentionally or unintentionally, he had played into the cultural problem that they had and that we still have. No dialogue, no following God where he leads, just shying back from the whole conversation. And here's the point. If our use of the gospel is not tearing down racial laws, if it's not reconciling racial differences, it's not the gospel of Jesus. It is not accomplishing what God has called us to accomplish within our culture. So then in verse 34, it says, Then Peter began to speak. And he says, I now realize how true it is. I love this. You know, Peter had always known this, but now it's just washing over him in a new reality that God does not show favoritism. That's what he says, that God does not show favoritism. And favoritism is destructive. The, the comfort that comes from people who, that you're around, that you show favoritism, people look like you, think like you, favoritism is destructive to the fabric of society and the church as well. And maybe the issue isn't racism in the way that we think about it. That, you know, that, raci that racism that's socially unacceptable. Maybe there's another layer that we should look at in our lives, in our attitude towards stereotypes, in our assumptions, and our jokes, and our banter, and our echo chambers of only hearing from other people who are like us, who think like us, to ignore the fact that there are built-in prejudices within our society, it comes across as ignorant. It really does. To dismiss people as being paranoid, it comes off of, as very, very arrogant. 
to not address the issues within our culture and actively work against it is to not live up to the call of the church within our culture. I mean, for Peter, he was one of the 12. And God used him to do so many things from chapter 1 to 10. And many of us can take comfort that he messed this up, but he figured it out. So maybe the issue isn't that we're racist, but that we have a favoritism or a bent or a leaning in our lives that we don't realize can hurt other people and our culture. So who do we not associate with us? That's the question. Who's that person that you work with that you've never had lunch with or had conversation with? You have all kind of assumptions about who they are and what they believe, but you've never actually talked to them. See, if favoritism is so wrong... If what the Bible is asking us to ask ourselves is what is the op- opposite of favoritism? Let's do that. If favoritism is only hanging out with people that are like you and it's comfortable, let's do the opposite of that. To intentionally cultivate relationships with people that don't think like you or don't believe like you or have had different experiences in their life than you have had. Because we cannot read the story of the early st- of the early church and how Jesus sent his son and not learn to dialogue and not listen to people that are different than you. And we have allowed, and we're so guilty of this, is allowing our culture to define for us the kind of people that we associate with. God says that there are all these people that, that I've created. Go share my higher love with them. Make disciples of the world. And we allow the world to tell us that there's only two kind of people. There's my kind of people and then there's everybody else. Is that not evidence that, that Jesus is missing within our culture? And as Christians, we are called to enter into those conversations and show them what Jesus and the hope and the truth of higher love, of what happened on a cross, means for us today. But instead, sometimes we allow these conversations, this viewpoint of us and them. Are you with us or are you with them? And that dilutes the power of the gospel. We don't want to get mixed up in their power struggle. And then we forget that Jesus already accomplished this. It's just that we need to walk in this higher love that he exemplified for us. That what he accomplished for us is more than enough to show the world something different. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you to have a conversation with somebody who has a different experience than you. But if we're like Peter and we just back away from the problem and just not even attempt to learn... Not even attempt to be a part of the solution of a bigger overarching problem that is woven into the fabric of our society, then we've got an issue. That is not higher love. That is not selfless love. The thought that any one person is better than another person is sin, period. That any one person should be treated differently than somebody else is sin. It's the opposite of the gospel. The higher love and the kingdom love that he created. And if you're somebody that doesn't like diversity, you just see diversity in our culture is a big problem that we should just all stay culturally pure and separate from each other. I tell you, but you're going to hate heaven. (laughs) Revelation 7 describes heaven. We get a picture of it. And it describes it as a great multitude that nobody could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. In part, heaven is going to be this epic worship service where all God's creation, 
who were created in his image are gathered together before him just worshiping him. And to think that one race is better or superior in any kind of way is completely antithetical to what the gospel says. In fact, it's missing what Jesus came along to do and to accomplish for us. And for some of us, it's not even about how we've been treated. It's, about, it's just about understanding that it's not them against us. As Miles McPherson says in an amazing book called The Third Choice, I recommend it. He talks about that the third choice is to seek to understand each other instead of us versus them. And I want to encourage you, seek to understand. It, listen, it's obviously an issue within our culture. But do you know what the hope of the world is? Do you know where it is? It's not in a news station. It's not in a political party. It's in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that gospel being lived out in our life through this higher love. See, Jesus laid down every advantage that he has. And he levered it, he leveraged it for our salvation by going to the cross. And you and I, in order to introduce people to the story of hope and life and the kind of love that, that, that Jesus gave us, the kind of love that is self-sacrificing, it's the kind of love that has conversations with people that don't think like you. It's the kind of love that is not easily angered when people ask you stupid questions. It's the kind of love that, that can listen to the experiences of somebody else and listen to something that we've never experienced with empathy. It's the kind of love that takes responsibility for the sins of our culture. The kind of love the kind of, that can offer apologies for things that we didn't even personally participate in, but we can see the effects of within our culture even today. That only happens if we have conversations with people that are different than us. See, reconciliation is already at the foot of the cross. It's already part of this higher love that God put in our heart. And we've just got to leverage it and recognize it and then put it into motion. Is that right?